Our reading today is from Esther, chapter 4 and verses 1 to 17. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches a king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Well, you want to uh, keep your passages open there in front of you, and there'll be a question time afterwards, uh, so after the sermon. Uh, so as we go, if you want to write down any uh, questions you have uh, that you'd like to explore a little bit more, uh, please do. Uh, there's so much here in the scriptures we've just read that uh, we just have to skim over uh, because of time. Uh, but uh, if you've got a question, chances are someone else has that question and they'll be thanking you for, uh, for asking it, so please do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we would see wonderful things in your word. Amen. Strong words there in verse 12, aren't they? If you remain silent... Relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from somewhere else. But who knows? 
Maybe God made you to be queen for such a time as this. It's fantastic, isn't it? I love Mordecai's question here because I love that the answer is just so obvious, isn't it? Who knows? Hey, you know, think about it, Esther. You started life as an orphan to refugees. You had to grow up with me, your older cousin. You were taken from your home, forced to go through 12 months of beauty treatments. You had your dignity and your virginity stripped from you by a selfish and indulgent king. You kept your nationality as a Jew secret, even though you didn't understand why. And now that God's people are in danger of being completely wiped off the face of the earth, you happen to be the wife to the one most powerful man in all the world. The one man who has power to stop this disaster from happening. And who knows, Esther? Maybe, just maybe, God did all that for a reason. Just maybe God had worked all of those things in your life together to bring you to this point where you are queen so that you can do something to stop this disaster. Maybe, who knows? Maybe God put you here because he wants to use you to rescue his people. When you put it like that, Mordecai, the answer seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? It reminds me a little bit of a joke uh, you might have heard uh, about a man who's stuck in a shipwreck and he's out at sea and he's bobbing along on a bit of uh, flotsam and jetsam and, and he prays to God. He says, God, please save me. I know you'll save me. Thank you. And while he's floating along there, out comes uh, someone in a life raft. Hey, mate, quick, climb on board, you know. Oh, no, it's all right. I'm waiting for God to save me. And uh, so the lifeboat bobs on along and saves some other people more worthy. A little while later, a rescue boat comes along. Come on, mate, climb aboard. Hang on to the rope. We'll pull you in. We'll take you to safety. No, it's okay. I'm good. God's going to save me. I'm I'm just going to sit here and wait for him. Well, a little while later, you know, all the other survivors have been picked up by this stage and he's the last one left. And along comes a helicopter. And the guy comes down on the rope and he's there and he's saying, grab onto me, I'll take you to safety, we'll rescue you. And he goes, no, it's all right. I don't need you, I'm waiting for God. God's going to rescue me. And so confused and frustrated, off goes the chopper. And eventually the man drowns. And the man's standing before God and he says, God, you know, what were you doing? I trusted you, I asked you to rescue me and you didn't rescue me. And God says, are you serious? (laughs) Look, mate, I I sent you a lifeboat, a rescue boat, and a helicopter. What more do you expect of me? You know, maybe, just maybe, who knows? Maybe I sent them along to save you. Who knows? Maybe you should have just grabbed on to one of those opportunities I sent you. Maybe you should have jumped on board. Well, it's a funny joke, isn't it? But this joke, it, it hits on this, the intersection, the kind of the overlap between God's control of all the world and our responsibility as humans. It's that overlap between God's sovereignty, his control of everything, 
and our responsibility, our responsibility to act at, uh, throughout our lives in accordance with what he is doing. See, God is in control of my life and your life, just like he was in control of Esther's life. The big things, and as we've seen in Esther, all those little tiny things that seem insignificant and meaningless at the time. See, that man, our foolish friend floating there in the sea, had a very twisted idea of how God's sovereignty works. He missed opportunities that God sent for him to get on board with what God is doing. He missed the responsibility he had to accept what God was giving him. And he missed out. And so this morning, God is putting Mordecai's question to you and me. Who knows, Scott? Who knows, John? Who knows, Gail? Who knows? But maybe, just maybe, God has placed you here in this season of your life. He's been working together all the big and little things leading up to this point for his purpose. Maybe, just maybe, God has been working everything together to put you in the perfect position to get on board with what he is doing. The perfect position to act in a way that is for the good of his kingdom and to be part of what he is doing in his plans and his promises. Maybe, just maybe, like that man floating in the sea, you and I need to take the responsibility and see the opportunities that God has put before us and what he is inviting us and calling us into and get on board. Now, it seems a little counterintuitive at first. We might think that because God is in control, we don't do anything. What difference would it make anyway? But when we recognise that God is in control with a purpose and he's putting everything together for a reason, and he actually puts us in situations where we have responsibility, well, then we realise that actually God's sovereignty results in our responsibility. God's sovereignty sparks action from us to get on board with what God is doing. So what is it that God has placed us here for at this time? Well, as we look at this passage first, we see that God has placed us here to pray. And so while God's sovereignty produces action, it also produces prayer. Have a look at verse 1. When Mordecai learned of what had been done, uh, that is, he'd learnt of this decree, this law that had gone out uh, for all peoples to kill any Jew they came across. When Mordecai learnt of this, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly, and every province to which the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Now, in the Bible, putting on sackcloth, think like those really old potato sacks that you used to, you know, uh, have sack races in at primary school. Really rough, really scratchy, really itchy. Well, the ones that they made back then were probably scratchier and itchier and rougher than these ones. They used to put on this horrible 
fabric. And they used to go to the fire and scoop up the ashes and the dust and they'd throw it on their heads and their faces and their skin. It would have gone in their eyes and their mouths and their nostrils. And, and they used to do this. And they used to get down and they used to stop eating as a way to remind themselves that actually the thing they need most of all, more than food right now, is to stop and pray to the God who's in control. See, we might think, well, if God is in control of everything, what is the point of praying? You know, if he's going to do what he's going to do, what difference are my prayers going to make? In Matthew, Jesus told us that actually before we pray, God already knows what we need and what we're going to ask him. So you'd think what Jesus is going to say next is, well, so don't bother praying. He already knows it. Don't worry about praying. There's no point. But actually, immediately after, Jesus goes on to teach us to pray, what to pray for and how to pray. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer. He tells us to keep praying and not to give up, even if it doesn't seem to be doing anything. See, we don't not pray because God is in control. Actually, because God is in control and he's told us that he will work through our prayers, God's people pray. God's sovereignty produces prayer. Now in Esther, we see that a perfect model and how rightly understanding God's sovereignty produces prayer. See, look there at those verses. Look at Mordecai. You jump down to verse 13 and 14 and we see that Mordecai, he is 100% convinced, isn't he, that God will save his people. There is no doubt in Mordecai's mind that God will save his people. And if it's not through Esther, it'll be from somewhere else. He knows God will keep his promises. But does Mordecai sit back and think God's got it under control, I don't have to worry about it? No, his immediate response is to fall to his knees and to plead with God to rescue his people, to plead with God to come good on his promise now. He trusts God. And then we see Esther, she does the same. She trusts God and chooses to go to the king, but before she does, she sends word back to Mordecai, tell every Jew that you can find in the city Tell them to join me in praying for three days. Let's all stop eating. Let's all fast. Let's all do nothing but pray for three days that God will rescue us out of this tragedy, this disaster. See, prayer is the right response to knowing that God is in control because God has told us that when we pray, he will listen and he will act and he will work through our prayers. And so it's a good point in time, isn't it? Just stop and do a little self-evaluation. Do you, do I, do we need to get serious about prayer? Do you need to repent like I have needed to today, this week, of your disobedience to be persistent in prayer like God has commanded? Do you need to recalibrate your thinking and your ideas of the place of prayer and of God's control and 
Maybe you've been thinking, well, prayer doesn't really matter because God just goes on and does his thing and doesn't make a difference. Do you need to reteach yourself? No, that's not true. He will keep doing what he does, but he has told me to pray and that he will act in response to my prayers. How will you fast? And by that, I don't necessarily just mean stop eating. It might be that you stop eating like they did so many times through the Bible, like Jesus and his disciples did at many points. But what I mean is how will you, what, what will you build into your life to teach you and to train you and to discipline yourself to remind you that the thing that you need more than food, more than anything, is to pray to the God who is in control of all things and who is working for the good of his people. What will you do to teach yourself, actually, I need to be disciplined in prayer like Jesus has taught me? How will you remind yourself that because God is in control, the one thing you need to do is to get on board and pray that he will bring about his purposes and his promises? See, understanding that God is in complete control, it sparks us to action and it produces prayer. But it also results in responsibility. I look at verse 8. Mordecai gave the servant a copy of the text of the edict, that's the law for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show it to Esther and explain it to her. He told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. And then jump down a little bit further, verse 14, he says to Esther again, he says, Esther, if you don't, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come for the Jews from somewhere else. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, I don't know here, anyone of royal lineage? No? Don't have any royal blood amongst us? No? No? Maybe, maybe it's not, you know, sort of actual royalty. Maybe it's, you know, some kind of, I don't know, acting royalty or sports royalty or, I don't know, local Mount Barker area royalty. I'm not sure. Uh, but I don't think any of us are in a situation like Esther. But... As we look around our world, we realise that all of us are in a situation like Esther. Because around us, all around us, are people who have a death sentence over their heads. All around us are people who are perishing. People who face annihilation. All around us in our world are people who are also mistreated. All around us, there are people who we actually do, little old us, have power to help in many ways. And so who are we sticking our necks out to advocate for and help and save and to rescue? See, we're in a world that faces annihilation because every single person who doesn't have Jesus will face God and they will perish. And God has placed you and me 
in a position where we have the words of eternal life. We have the message of hope. We have the message of forgiveness, the message that God will adopt enemies to be his sons and daughters. We have, the, God has put us in the perfect position to rescue people, not just from death, but from eternal death. And it's an uncomfortable truth, isn't it? It's uncomfortable because if we're honest with ourselves, we realise that we've been saving our own skin too much of the time. We've been too comfortable and happy and prepared to leave people in this state. Lost, dead, hopeless. And how often do we sit back expecting and hoping that God will save our friends and our families and our neighbours and our colleagues, but we don't actually lift a finger. We don't actually open our lips to try and help them to point them to Jesus. We find ourselves a bit, don't we, like the shipwrecked man where there are boats and helicopters and we're just letting the opportunities go by one after the other. Well, parents, your number one responsibility as parents is to disciple your kids. And so if you're a parent, are you actively doing that? Maybe your kids are grown up now. That's a very different way that you try and do that now. But still, your responsibility to them, the most important thing and wonderful thing you can do for them is to do everything you can to point them to Jesus. And if they're already in Jesus, they're already trusting Jesus, so do everything you can to help them keep clinging to Jesus, to grow to know and love him more and to praise him. Husbands, your number one responsibility, our number one responsibility to our wives is to disciple them. It's to love them with the gospel. It's to help them grow in Christ, to help them grow in maturity. And so if your wife's not a Christian, your number one role as a husband is to love her and to try and bring her to Jesus. If she is a Christian, your number one role is to help her grow in Christ. But what about all of us? You might not be a parent or a husband. All of us, our number one responsibility to our Christian brothers and sisters is disciple. The Bible tells us again and again that our responsibility to each other in Christ is that we speak the truth to each other in love to build each other up. That it takes every single little part, every single person in God's church working together for the good of everyone. And so are you looking for opportunities to invest and encourage and speak the truth in love to your Christian brothers and sisters? Here, welcoming, uh, building relationship, uh, looking out for people who are maybe left out or on their own or lonely. Investing in relationship with each other beyond just Sundays. In growth groups, great way to invest, to get to know a small group of people really well and open the Bible together and pray together and go through life together. And then for each of us, each of us has a number one responsibility to those around us who are unsaved. 
And our number one responsibility to every unsaved person on this planet is to disciple them. It's to do everything in our power to make sure they have every opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus. It's to live lives that show that that good news is really good. To live godly and righteous lives, to love people, to invest in people, to build a relationship with people, to open our mouths and then speak about how great Jesus is and what he's done for them. See, all of us live in a world like Esther, don't we? All of us find ourselves in a situation like Esther, not a queen, not a king, but with the position and the power and the ability to do something, to do something to save people around us, to do something to help people hang on to Christ so that they will not perish. But of course, discipling isn't our only responsibility, is it? Also to care for, to love, to stand up for, to protect, to honour, to advocate for, to respect people who are marginalised, enslaved, mistreated, powerless, poor. And so in both these ways, in terms of pointing people to Jesus and the point of just loving and caring for people, we have to ask the question, are you standing back and remaining silent and expecting God to do his thing? Am I? Or are we, like Esther, going to step forward and say, God, in prayer, please use me. I will go to these people you've put around me. Please work through me to bring them to Christ. God's sovereignty sparks action. God's sovereignty produces prayer. God's sovereignty results in responsibility. And lastly, God's sovereignty foils fear. Have a look there at uh, our first reading, uh, Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And jump down a little to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then down to our Esther reading, verse 16. Esther decides she's going to grab onto that chopper. I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. See, when we know, when we believe that God is in complete control of everything, it actually means that we no longer fear the consequences of standing up and speaking out for Christ. When we know that God is in control of everything, we no longer need to be afraid of what trouble or hardship we might face for following him. We come to realise that whatever power the world might have to do us harm, it's really just an illusion of power. As Jesus said, what's the worst that they can do to you? Well, the worst they could do to you is kill you. It's pretty bad. But all they can kill is your body 
They cannot kill your soul. So don't worry about someone who all they can do, the very, very worst they can do is kill your body. Because we know the one who has the power to destroy both body and soul. The one who also has the power to give eternal life to those who turn to Christ. See, when we realise that the consequences of not standing up for Christ, the consequences of not putting our neck out, the consequences of not speaking. We realise that those consequences of not doing that are far greater than the consequences of doing it. The consequences for people not knowing Jesus and facing an eternity of judgment and condemnation, that is a far greater consequence than if I face hardship, I get cut off, I get ostracised, I get persecuted, mistreated, jailed, killed even. They don't even compare. When we realise that, we stop trying to just save our own skins and we grab on to that life raft. We grab on to those opportunities that God has called us to. We grab on to the responsibility that God has placed us in this exact perfect position to take hold of and we follow Christ now Esther is a fantastic model isn't she for us to imitate Uh, we should actually admire and look up to her as a kind of a hero of the faith but this story we know isn't just about Esther it isn't just about the Jews It not just about what happened back then Actually, Esther is a little bit of a shadow, a faint shadow or foretaste of our true model, Jesus. See, Esther faced the possibility of death, whereas Jesus knowingly walked into it, knowing 100% that he was there to die. Esther risked losing her royal position And Jesus willingly gave up his seat on the throne of heaven to come and become nothing to save his people. Esther risked the wrath of a foolish and impulsive king, whereas Jesus placed himself in the wrath of God, the almighty king of all creation. Esther chose to reveal her identity as part of a doomed and hated people. Whereas Jesus, who is God himself, took on our humanity, took on our identity, became human, became one of the doomed people so that he would save. Esther used her position to bring about historical deliverance And Jesus used his position to bring eternal deliverance by giving himself as a sacrifice to save people from their sins. See, Jesus is our true model. Jesus is the one who we see there in the beginning of uh, that reading in Romans. He is the one who God is shaping his people to look like. He is the model and the image whose likeness God is making us into. 
And because God is sovereign, because he's in control, because Jesus is risen and he reigns, we can face death, hardship, exclusion, attacks. We can face anything this world can throw at us. Because we know the truth here in in Romans 8 verse 38 as we read, that neither death nor life, Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. And so we are prepared to face death, as Romans 8 says, all day long. We are prepared, like Esther, to say, if I perish, I perish. Because I know that God in his sovereignty has placed me here in this exact moment with this exact history, this exact DNA, with these exact relationships and connections and this community for his purpose to bring about good for his people, to use me to bring about salvation for people who will be annihilated. God's sovereignty sparks action. It produces prayer. It results in responsibility. It foils our fear. So I'm going to leave with this question for you. Who knows? Maybe God has placed you here right now in your life for this time to do his will will you get on that helicopter will you jump in that life raft will you take up the responsibility of joining him in what he is doing or you let those opportunities he's given you go to waste let's pray heavenly father we thank you that you are in control and lord we do pray that you'll transform the way we think to realise that every situation we find ourselves, all the good, the bad, the ugly, the mess, the pain, all of that you've done for a reason so that you can use us. You give us these opportunities to use us to bring about your plan and your purposes and your promises. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll make us faithful to take up that responsibility, not to be afraid, to get down on our knees in prayer and to act for the good of your plans and your people. Amen.